Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yo, Deke. Alright, hello, hello everybody out there. Welcome back to the show, the Decast. And uh, we're episode 79 here today with Dr. Chana Prakash. How are you, sir? I'm very good, Derek. Thank you. Nice to be with you. That's great. So Dr. Chana is uh, Dean of uh, the College of Arts and Sciences at Tuskegee University in Alabama. Uh, he has served on the faculty since 89, one year after I was born. He is a professor of crop genetics and biotechnology. His research expertise is on genetic improvements of food crops of importance to developing nations. And his lab was among the first to develop transgenic sweet potato and peanut plants, as well as conducting some of the first genomic studies on the peanut. Is all that correct, sir? Do I have that right? (laughs) You got that right. Well, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your, your origins, your background, and in, in maybe your uh, academic certainly. background? Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I grew up in India. You know, I, I grew up, I was born and brought up in a city called Bangalore, India. That's uh, like a, right now the, the tech capital, the software capital of India. And uh, in fact, my city of Bangalore has more uh, employees in the information technology then probably more than Silicon Valley and Research Triangle Park and Route 128 put together. I majored in agriculture there and I did my master's in genetics and plant breeding. And then I went to Australia to do my PhD uh, in forest genetics. And then I moved to United States. I was a postdoctoral scientist at University of Kentucky for a couple of years. And then I moved to Tuskegee University, where I've been uh, since 1989, as you mentioned. And uh, I teach, I still teach uh, plant biotechnology. And uh, I helped establish one of the very first labs here on working with molecular biology and genetic engineering with crop plants. So it's safe to say you're a big deal. You're kind of a big deal. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> My children don't think so. <laughs> well, um, I think I found you on Twitter through Dr. Kevin Folta, who's been on the show a couple uh, times. Um, right. And you just have this interesting humor and uh, interesting lens on everything. And you, you talk a lot of uh, sometimes about pop culture references and um, you tweet a lot of interesting articles and, and that. So um, a couple I wanted to ask you about before we get into more of the... Um, the, the general stuff, but um, so some of your recent tweets, you, you just tweeted about this raspberry racket um, <laughs> about uh, export fraud and raspberries coming from China to Chile to Canada. Um, what is the background there on that story? <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting uh, uh, story that uh, was published just yesterday, I think. And uh, this is about how uh, an investigation in Canada uncovered uh, organic raspberries that were seemingly coming from Chile and it was packed in Chile and it was labeled in Chile. But uh, when they found out that it was being grown all over in China and it was being shipped all the way to South America 
where they were repackaging and rebranding it and, uh, and then shipping it to Canada. It just shows that a lot of us are not really aware as to how much fraud that occurs. And I've, I've heard that much of olive oil, for instance, that what we get here even in the supermarket is not olive oil at all. And that was kind of uh, surprising to a lot. But an interesting twist to this raspberry story is that it's not just, you know, just getting away with a, with a false label. There was a serious incidence of uh, uh, viral diarrhea due to norovirus, you know, the, the cruise ship uh, diarrhea that we, are, we hear often. Uh, the sickness that was quite uh, rampant in Canada in 2017, and although it was not uh, completely, uh, it was not fully linked to this raspberry, there is a suspicion that these raspberries, especially those that are, you know, termed organic, they, they tend to use a lot of manure, and if they're not sterilized properly, they can get into a fecal matter, can get into your produce, and can cause a lot of uh, a lot of harm and we hear that quite often in organic produce and so that was kind of a very interesting story that came out yesterday right so even when we think we're tracking down exactly where our food may come from we are still mm. susceptible to other fraud or uh, errors things that we don't necessarily know about or, or can't can't know about some degree. yes certainly certainly and that's why there is lots of lot more uh, consciousness about where our food comf comes from. And there's a lot of questions that uh, the general consuming public ask these days. Yes. Um, so what are, what is in general, what, what is biotech? I know it's a broad term. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. what should the average person know or understand about agriculture and biotech in 2020? Well, I think for an average person, they need to understand that this was a technology that was developed in the early 80s, and uh, it was deployed for the first time in the middle of uh, 1990s. And uh, we have these technology, and there are a variety of uh, uh, tools that this technology provides, but the most important one is so-called genetically modified organisms or GM crops uh, that, uh, that have tend to have become controversial in the past few years, but much of that is because of the misinformation and misperception on this technology. Agriculture biotechnology, the GM, the so-called GM crops have been grown on literally on hundreds and hundreds of millions of acres every year. And uh, we have um, almost 30 countries who plant these crops. And uh, we have had a very safe history of their use. Uh, when you develop a, a GM uh, crop variety, it goes through a tremendous amount of testing for its safety, uh, its impact on human health, its impact on livestock health, and its impact on the environment. And no other food product or agriculture product is tested as much as these GM crops are. And not just here in the United States or Canada with or Brazil, Argentina, where they're mostly produced, but also in all the importing countries, like European Union is one of the biggest consumers of these uh, GM products. And uh, despite its success, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of doubts in the mind of the public. Uh, a lot of it's orchestrated by groups that are opposed to these, this technology. And just today, 
we heard uh, a Nobel Prize was given to two women who developed an amazing technique called CRISPR gene editing while it was developed uh, in the microorganism, in the bacteria, uh, in its defense against virus, which, which happens naturally. And much of the, the really amazing application of this technique is in, uh, in, in, uh, in curing human diseases already it's being used uh, to treat sickle cell anemia on an experimental basis. There's a lot of application of this technology in agriculture too. Uh, in, and so by being open-minded about this technology, I think the society can realize a lot of benefits. And by, by needlessly opposing, mindlessly opposing technology, I think we're denying the benefits of this technology, especially to developing countries where I think it can matter a lot. Is that a bit of a, um, in the, the Western world, we have a bit of a privilege, so to speak, or a, a blindness to the developing nations where we may criticize something because we have the mm-hmm. ability to and still live a normal life, but where in a, a developing nation, they may heavily rely on something that we might criticize that, that, that they actually really need. Absolutely. And I think this GM crops technology is one really good example of that. But you can also think of other issues such as, you know, malaria and tuberculosis. And many of those infectious diseases kill literally millions of people. And then vitamin deficiency, uh, just vitamin A deficiency alone uh, kills about half a million children today, uh, every year. And another one quarter of a million go blind every year. And so there are a lot of tools developed through biotechnology, and these are not necessarily relevant to the United States or in Europe, but you know, if you're living in Bangladesh or in Nigeria, uh, they can mean a lot. It can mean uh, a difference between life and death. And so I think uh, there is a certain moral responsibility on the part of those of us who live in the West and who have benefited tremendously uh, from science and technology now that we should not be closing doors on continued innovation of this technology. So those, especially those less fortunate, can also benefit from them. Yeah, for people who don't know, what are some of the most popular examples of these uh, genetic crops? Like uh, you, you talk a lot about BT eggplant, there's um, mm-hmm. the golden rice, um, right. these different fortified crops that, that you just alluded to that have all the other. What are some other uh, common right. ones? Right, I think golden rice is, is, is an excellent example. It was something that was developed you know, over 20 years ago uh, in a lab laboratory at Switzerland in collaboration with scientists at International Rice Research Institute in Philippines. They did a lot of testing of these. And uh, what this does is golden rice has genes from maize, a couple of genes from maize. And so just like the, the, the maize, the corn kernels have yellow color, and that is because of the beta-carotene uh, antioxidant in that, which is converted into vitamin A in your body. See, this golden rice appears golden in color simply because it has an extra vitamin A precursor that uh, the none of the regular rice varieties has. And so grow, if, if farmers are allowed to grow this variety uh, and uh, if consumers have access to this, it can really help addressing the vitamin A deficiency problem that I alluded to. And yet, not a single farmer in the world is able to grow golden rice 
not because of any safety concerns or anything. It's simply because of politics. It's simply because of a, a, a relentless attack on this technology and then golden rice perpetrated by activists such as Greenpeace. Uh, that governments such as in Philippines and in Bangladesh, where it's almost ready, it's all, all ready to go, have still not allowed their farmers to grow because of because of the activist uh, attack or, or, the, or the problems that they have with uh, activists and even the media too. Right. Uh, one other th- interesting thing you tweeted about the other day was um, this movie, Percy. Um, I believe Christopher Walken stars as mm-hmm. this gentleman, the farmer from Saskatchewan, uh, Percy right. Schmeiser. And this is... The funny thing that, about the tweet was that they had had to change the cover because they had the wrong crop <laughs> on the cover. It was right. corn I think instead of canola. Right. I think there was a lot of uh, things wrong about it. Percy Smizer was a farmer in Saskatchewan in Canada who was found to be growing uh, to almost 2,000 acres of uh, uh, a GM crop that he had not paid for you know it's like trying to use a a software on your computer that you are simply you know just stolen from a source and you're not paid for it and so he the monsanto company that had uh, the patents for those uh, varieties of gm crop that he was growing took him to the court and then the court decided against him usually this is a you know this is something that the companies have tended to ignore because the the, the, the amount of uh, piracy that goes on is not that big and there's a lot of negative publicity that comes along with it. But in this case, it was, this was a very brazen uh, uh, misappropriation of the intellectual property right. And so they went after that and, and then he kind of became a hero to the anti-biotech uh, groups because it was it kind of fitted into the, fits into the narrative of David versus Goliath in a way that you know he was a small farmer, the big multinational company went after him. And so it makes a very nice narration and it really helped them in, in trying to malign this technology and to to malign the the big the companies such as Monsanto as being evil. But in actual reality he's you know his the, his uh, court case, the, 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 the Canadian court system, looked at all the evidence and heard all people from both sides and decided against him. And, and yet that, that factor was not, not brought in very clearly into the movie because the movie was clearly in one-sided and it is not a factual representation of what happened. Uh, so, so devil's advocate, what was his side of the story anyways? Was it something about <laughs> their seeds flew into his right. thing and he didn't he know says, they were there? And Exactly. He oh. said, no, he didn't know that. He said it was just the pollen from the neighboring fields just came in the seeds, you know, just came into his and then uh, they planted that. And, you know, that, that happens when you, when you uh, because the winds do blow the pollen and, and the winds do blow the seeds. And it happens, but usually that is a small uh, contamination of your field. But uh, if you're planting 2,000 acres and every one of your plant turns out to be positive for this particular variety, and then you know, the companies 
do come after you. And it's not just because it was a GM crop. Uh, there is, a, a, you know, you, if, if even if you're an organic farmer and you're growing an organic variety from a company in that you're simply stolen their seeds, and if you plant it, the company will come after you. And so it's like anything else in this world. Right. Um, speaking of um, CRISPR, the, there are other um, ways it can be used as well, not just in uh, food security, but also uh, you tweeted about this uh, COVID-19 test in India that is very yeah. cheap and very uh, the results come within an hour. How does that work or what is the story around that? Right. And again, Indians were not the first to use CRISPR to develop uh, the COVID test. In fact, another the, uh, the co-inventor of CRISPR called Dr. Zhang at MIT uh, developed one of the very first protocol protocols for using CRISPR technology in detecting a COVID virus. And they made that uh, kit and the technology freely available for anybody to use in the world. But I think what is unique about this Indian uh, group from uh, that, that they announced a couple of days ago was that they the proof prototype or the proof of concept was something along the lines of a pregnancy test. You know, you could, it's they, they embedded the whole system on a, a, a piece of paper and you could just uh, dip that into the, the sample solution. And then uh, within uh, a very short time, depending on changing of the, the, the color, you can detect whether one can detect whether it is COVID positive or COVID, COVID negative with a fair amount of certainty. And it is Sorry, what is, the, what is the way that they test? What is the method that they test? Like Right. They use CRISPR. You see, CRISPR is a technology that, uh, that uses what we call is a piece of RNA called guide RNA to latch on to a, a piece of uh, a DNA. And, and then it changes the... the the code uh, that changes to one or two nucleotides, and that's how we do it, gene editing. So it's kind of like, think of it as uh, your iPhone, when you're texting me, which is just makes the auto-correction of the spellings. You see, or, or you could use a, a spelling corrector to make a deliberate correction of the mistakes that you make in your letters. In the same way, the CRISPR, we can use the technology to make small changes in the genetic sequence. but because it uses that matching system, we can also use that or uh, repurpose the CRISPR system into genetic detection system, not necessarily to change something because there is the guide RNA and the DNA, they, they try to attach themselves based on the sequences. And so if you, so they use this CRISPR guide RNA system essentially to, to see if that the, if the sample has COVID, then you would develop a positive attachment of that RNA with DNA, and through some coloring system, they could detect that positive attachment. Right. So it still would be a swab, but if you know what you're looking for, you use the CRISPR to sort of match that up. And if it if it makes a match, then it's so that's right. how the results come so quickly. So how do the results take like work now? Like if a test in COVID, a regular COVID test takes whatever it is, 24, 48, 72 right. hours. What is the method currently that we use? That's the current method we use is called PCR. It's a polymerase chain reaction method. Mm -hmm. What it is, is it was a technique that was developed uh, by a guy uh, working for a company called Cetus. 
his name is Carrie Mullis. It was developed in the 80s. It also uses a similar system where instead of guide RNA, what they use is they use uh, small synthetic pieces of DNA that have been constructed in the lab where they throw in into the sample and they tries to attach into the so those sequences where it finds a match. Mm. And, uh, and so they what they do is they try to throw in two sequences at either end of the gene that you want to detect. And then, and then in the laboratories, they amplify it using certain enzymes. And, uh, and that is, uh, goes through a, 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 a series of steps by which you can detect whether there is a positive hit or not. In other words, let's say, if you, again, if you're looking for a COVID uh, gene within the sample, this PCR would literally amplify the gene million fold mm. in the sample using this method. And then and the DNA would be in large enough quantities that it could be detected. And, and so this is the, the gold standard, the PCR technique, but it's also extremely sensitive. Sometimes even it is prone to... Uh, false positives too right, right. and uh, you may have a very very low viral load and because this is such a sensitive technique it will still pick up and PCR for instance is the tool that is used in DNA fingerprinting for instance mm. to catch you know the criminals and in paternity cases and it, it's something it's used in all forms of DNA identification Right. So CRISPR method may be much quicker, much more effective. And uh, what is the average time as the since COVID started as the time for your test results on average in the United States, for example, gotten any quicker or is it you still have to wait yes. a little bit for it? No, yes, it takes about 15 minutes. I think the one that, that uh, President Trump got tested, he used uh, the, the newer antigen technique that has come about by Abbott Labs. Mm. And uh, that takes about 15 minutes. And from what I hear, I haven't seen the complete details of the Indian method that you're talking about, but it also takes about 15 or 20 minutes, but it's much cheaper. Uh, uh, it only costs about like $5 or something like that. And so the idea is, right, it's idea is, uh, you know, the, if you have a very large scale and very rapid and fairly reliable technique, then it could be used. Uh, like you see, and I, I could use that practically in my every class to make sure every student that I'm teaching in person is negative. And we could use that while you are loading, you know, while you are for, for, the, for the aircrafts, for instance, for all the passengers that could be screened. So right. you can see that we could deploy it at a very large scale to bring back certain normalcy into end uh, the lot of lockdown that we still have all over the world. Right, especially waiting for second waves and that sort of thing. Right, um, it's, it's quite disturbing. Speaking of Trump and policy for a moment, uh, I read, I didn't know this, but uh, I realized that Trump signs a lot of executive orders and I don't know their efficacy. Uh, but uh, in 2019, he did sign an executive order modernizing the regulatory framework for agriculture right. biotech products. Now, if you're familiar with that, which I assume you are, right, what, yes. was this effective? Is it just for pro-business? Pro is it actually pro-biotech? Does it actually help? I think it's pro-science. It's one of those, uh, uh, I think, executive decisions or the executive order that Prince, President Trump promulgated that I personally support uh, because, you see, biotechnology regulation developed 
in an ad hoc, ad hoc manner, kind of hodgepodge over time. And we have three agencies that oversee biotechnology, biotechnology products regulation. If you develop a, a genetically modified crop, uh, and if that is a food, like corn or soybean that we eat, then the FDA gets into the regulatory role. And if you develop, a, if that happens to be a product that also is re resistant to pests, like the BT corn, then the EPA gets into the action, the, the Environmental Protection Agency. And also in most of these cases, the US Department of Agriculture is a primary regulator. And so each of them have their own regulatory uh, rules that we need to, to look up, but also there are three independent agencies with almost no coordination between them. Mm. And so this executive order simply brings them under a sing sim single umbrella and tries to make it easier. I don't think it compromises our uh, safety in any manner. Mm -hmm. I think it's far more uh, science-based and just makes it more streamlined. So when they, when we say it makes it easier streamlined, is that is it just uh, in for time, or is it uh, actually like you mentioned that it doesn't make it less safe? So are there less uh, hurdles they have to get over, or is it more of a speeding up? Um, I think it's both. Uh, I think he has challenged uh, you know the executive order challenges these agencies to come up with a more streamlined system that over time that it would uh, make it not just easier for uh, those who are applying for uh, a permit uh, and approvals that they could commercialize their product, but also to, to you see right now what ha what's happening is it just takes about 100 to 150 million dollars in expense to get a GM crop approved through all these uh, agencies and it takes uh, anywhere from seven to ten years and and the fact of the matter is because the the regulatory system is so onerous and so burdensome only very big uh, players like big multinational companies would have the financial wherewithal to get their products into the market right. smaller you know smaller players like the public sector universities including ours have really don't do not have the resource and much of this regulation was put in place in the 80s where we did not know much about uh, biotechnology and genetic engineering and its risks now in hindsight we we know a lot about it and we do recognize many of our initial fears were unfounded and so it is time to to make make this regulation more in line with the scientific knowledge that we have, and also make sure we open up in such a manner that it levels the playing field. Right. So tonight uh, we have the vice presidential debates, mm -hmm. and this may air just after that happens. But um, are there any? Is there anything at stake for the biotech world, uh, policy-wise, for this election, or is it is it going to be okay either way? Or are there any major? Um, things that we're focusing on. Right. I think as far as agricultural biotechnology is concerned, I don't think it's much matters much. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, with the Republicans uh, come back or with Democrats getting to the seat, because they are both are fairly well supportive of this technology uh, in the past, in the past 20, 25, 30 years, it has been both Republican and Democratic 
administrations have supported it. Uh, but in medical biotech, I think there are some issues where, uh, you know, the democratic governments have favored, for instance, stem cell technology, where Republicans have put some uh, hurdles on that in the beginning, at least. And but at the end of the day, I don't think it matters a great deal. But what's interesting footnote here is uh, Kamala Harris, her mother, you know, like me, came from India mm -hmm. uh, to do her uh, PhD here at uh, Cal Berkeley. And uh, she was a molecular biologist. She was a scientist who worked on GMOs and using uh, genetic modification technology in, in treating cancer. And she was a very well-known cancer researcher who later moved to McGill University and did much of her research over there. And she passed away a few years ago. And so from that point of view, I have a feeling Ms. Kamala Harris would have a, a, a little probably personal familiarity with this technology than Mike Pence. Uh, but Mike Pence has been equally very supportive uh, of this technology. Oh, interesting. Um, another, so we also just had um, the great guitar player, uh, Eddie Van Halen, pass away. <laughs> and I know you've, you've got a lot of humor on Twitter, but I have to say, I think it's a little too soon where you posted a meme <laughs> that's, that said bok choy, like B-A-C-H Choi, and then Elvis Parsley, and you your contribution was Eddie Van Kalen. Don't you think that's a little too soon, sir? <laughs> oh, I know, but it, it was no disrespect to the great guitarist. You know, it, is, it was uh, something that, uh, I, you know, a lot of music fans uh, were uh, upset, and I, I don't think I mocked him in any manner. It's just that it was a little meme that, I picked up where a lot of famous uh, musicians' names that rhymed with uh, uh, vegetables were put. Right. Yeah. And I thought that, and there's one other thing that also I liked was John Lemon. John Lemon. No, I, I thought yeah. it was great. I, I kid. It, I think it was a great tribute there. Um, mm -hmm. How Thank else you. have you found social media? How has your social media journey been? Have you, <laughs> uh, what are the pro, pros and cons? And how long have you been using Twitter? Um, to, to promote yeah. <laughs> science and, and talk about this stuff. Right. I think I've been both Twitter and Facebook. I've been for about 10 years now, you know, but before that I used to run a newsletter uh, and I used to run a, a website called Ag by a world, which is, you know, which I don't run anymore because much of all my, all my time I spend on the social media. Mm. And so that's why my Twitter handle and Facebook handle science handle is still Ag by a world because it's kind of carry over from my days where I used to run that website and I used to run a daily newsletter where essentially I was encapsulating some of the daily news on biotechnology and also had the readers were putting, you know, were sending me the comments. It was like a, the, the pre-social media discussion board. And uh, when, once the social media started taking off, I moved into this. And today, uh, like last month, Last month, I reached about 8 million people, which is really uh, amazing because I sit in this small town here in Alabama and, you know, I have my day job. And yet, uh, uh, the, the unique few hours that I spend on this, I'm able to reach a lot of people that I could not have imagined doing that in the pre-social media time. And so it has, it has been a good journey for me because it, uh, it keeps me intellectually occupied uh, to make sure I read up on the science and also to help bring that in a manner 
that the society can understand uh, into that and with of course peppered with humor and memes that you already noted yeah i think you use it in a good way in that it's a tool that uh, if you get involved in say controversy or or that kind of a negative twitter verses then you will you will uh, attract that as well but if if you put out positivity and humor and uh, knowledge mm -hmm. then you typically get the same thing back probably that's right i think it's been really positive i do i still occasionally get on people you know who don't <laughs> agree with me <laughs> and you know i try to engage them whenever i can but there are some that who are really not interested in engaging me to to you know, in terms of science or reason or fact, they just want to troll. And, you know, and those in some instances like that, it's, it's counterproductive to get into a, a, a drawn out argument. So which I, do, I just don't indulge in that. Right. Uh, you're familiar with Patrick Moore, the Greenpeace yeah. mm -hmm. guy? I know right. he follows you. Yeah. And I could never put my finger on what is this guy's deal because he is, he calls himself the sensible environmentalist, but uh, he said he was a founder of Greenpeace, but then Greenpeace said he wasn't. Mm -hmm. um, but wasn't Greenpeace originally like a loose collective? It wasn't really like an right. organization at, at, at first. But right. it, he, is, he was amongst the, the founders of Greenpeace when it was really a bunch of hippies mm -hmm. you know, going around and trying to protest a nuclear uh, reactors and things of that nature in Canada. Right. And, uh, and then he went on to get his PhD in forest ecology from, uh, from British Columbia. And then he and Brit Greenpeace parted their ways. And then he went on to uh, become a, a kind of a, an activist, uh, activist on his own. And uh, he's been very, very greatly supportive of agricultural biotechnology and the science behind it. But one of the places where he gets into problem is he's also a, a big denier of global warming and that's get into uh, a, a lot of his uh, you know his problems come from his very his very strong position against global climate change which i think in the in the in the, you know, the increasing evidence that we have seen in the past 20 years now we do recognize that there is a global climate change and there's a very strong uh, likelihood that some of this global climate change is caused by human beings. And so when, and I think in science, you know, you can have uh, your ideological position, but in, when, you, when you're faced with evidence, you must be allowed to, you know, you must change your mind. And that's how the science works. And so if there is an overwhelming evidence that, that something is, not as you had always thought then you need to change your position more on right is it, i gotta say it seems like it's a difficult task when we say there's overwhelming evidence of something uh we keep repeating that whereas the scientists know what that means because they can chew on the data and figure it out and look at right. the models and that but the average person has their tendencies their political leanings and whatnot and they get clouded sort of by um don't want to necessarily say lack of but lack of knowledge almost um right how does the average person digest uh when we say there's an overwhelming um uh, evidence of but something it's, it's not easy you know if it's global climate change or even now even more uh 
of relevant interest is vaccines, the safety of vaccines. As you know, there's quite a, a sizable group of people, uh, including President Trump at one time, although he's now a big, talks about vaccines every day. <laughs> he was an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You know, there, there are a lot of famous people who are opposed to vaccines. Robert De Niro comes to mind. And, uh, and so they have... There is, uh, again, when you talk about scientific consensus, I mean, you could have even scientists uh, who may not agree with you. But on the other hand, uh, the science is a process where, you know, the experts look at the evidence and, uh, and, and uh, the evidence, as you know, again, changes every day. And, uh, and the scientific opinion might, chi- might change. But uh, currently, with all the evidence that we have on the vaccines, we know they are safe and uh, the small amount of risk that they bring uh, is, is uh, when you balance it against the overwhelming benefits that they bring to the society, uh, that the risk is very, very small and insignificant. And, and, and so that is how the scientific consensus is. And it's the same with the global warming. And it's the same when it comes to the safety of the GM crops. At this point in time, this is what it is. Right. And it, I can understand for a common person, it is difficult. And at the same time, what has happened with this social media trend is that each of us, we are kind of sucked in into our ideological groups that we want to believe uh, are, they are in more aligned with our beliefs. So we get trapped into these echo chambers in social media. And that is uh, what has led to this deep polarization on many of these topics in the society today. Yeah, it also seems that 2020 has been the poster child for not understanding science or keeping up with it because we have this, the WHO and the mm-hmm. CDC with different information all the time, which um, logically it seems that we have to take it day by day as the scientists do, as they see the evidence and they analyze it, they'll tell us what the most recent finding is, but it seems there has been some points along the way globally with COVID that we are. Um, hearing right. different opinions. And uh, they, again, the average person gets confused and they think, well, this, the WHO or the CDC must not know what they're doing. Where in reality, they, they've probably had a lot of training and academia mm-hmm. that, that goes into it. And that more or less, they probably know what they're doing. Maybe there's a communications um, error that uh, we're experiencing. Right. And also most people you know, may not recognize that uh, in science, you know, we, 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 there is never a certainty. There is always a certain element of uh, uncertainty there. And that the scientists argue and fight all the time over certain issues. And when the when general public sees science in action, they might see something like it, come, it might come across as a very strong discordance between the scientists. But really, in, in reality, this is how the scientific consensus builds up or, you know, we, we look at the evidence, we argue over the merits of each of these, and over time, the scientific consensus develops. But the, what is with COVID is it is so new, and then the, the information is coming at a very rapid stage, but still it is so new, and we still don't know a lot about it. And, and right. so, and that's what it is. And when the scientists are very honest about it, sometimes the general public tends to doubt their expertise, but in reality, the, the scientists are, you know, simply being honest. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, we were 
thinking about how the COVID, uh, the coronavirus is transmitted earlier, like on the surface, you know, we used to. Right. It started with 24 hours, 48 hours, then that went down to a few hours. And the latest is the six feet versus eight feet droplets and this kind of thing where obviously it's probably, uh, again, it should be logical that, okay, it's not always going to be six feet. It's going to be four, five, six, seven, right? Um, Exactly. You know, and as the new information comes along and more research is done on it, our knowledge gets gets better and better. And, and so that's what it is. Like, for example, with SARS, let's say, um, mm-hmm. have we figured out everything about SARS to, at, to, at this point? Uh, are there still things that we're crunching data on about SARS? Like, how long will it take for the world to fully understand COVID, um, you know, with a, with a large degree? Like, is, do you think it's a 5, 10-year thing, 20-year thing? I mean, it's hard to know mm-hmm. for you know, sure. You know, I, I'm really not a biomedical <laughs> scientist. And so, you know, my knowledge on this is, it's just, uh, again, as much as uh, uh, many other people from, from, again, when you look at historically, many of these diseases have had a very long lag. It just not go away very quickly. And even with our tremendous uh, force that we are putting onto this in terms of the scientific uh, work that we are doing in terms of all the vaccines we are developing, Many of these tend to, you know, have their take their own time, and when you look at it, uh, even now, uh, AIDS, we don't have a vaccine right. for HIV, and so they, they, they uh, and when Ebola, well, it was uh, quite a, a very horrible disease that uh, that just came on board a few years ago, and you know, it's still not been uh, extinguished. We still don't have a, a vaccine against it, and there's a lot of diseases that keeps coming back and so there is a, it's very likely that even with vaccine coming along against COVID, uh, this is going to be in our midst for some time. Um, speaking of time and time horizons, when we look at uh, agricultural biotech and CRISPR and these different technologies, what, what do you see in the time horizon for say 50, 100, 500 years? Are there things that are unrealistic that will not happen and are there things that we maybe can't imagine today but they may be possible mm-hmm. in say 500 years something like that <laughs> yes you know as you know what they say about trying to guess uh, you know predicting the future right well, neither of us will be here to know if we if we got it right so we might as well just <laughs> right. yeah i might as well look at the crystal ball but i do believe that you know i cannot tell what would happen but what i can tell is the signs will find a way for many of the problems that we are facing today. Uh, you know, whether it is our reliance on fossil fuels, for instance, you know, uh, I'm sure probably in 20, 30 years from now, the petroleum, use of petroleum, reliance on petroleum and natural gas, all of that would probably be history. You know, we might, we might have a, a new source of energy that we may not even thought of today. Mm. You see what I mean? And so it's the same with uh, the global warming. Uh, along with that, some of the issues of the global warming might might be taken care of too. And it's the same with the biomedical science. Uh, the research, the, the the science is advancing so rapidly, uh, powered by all these innovations such as CRISPR, for instance, that we are getting a very effective handle on many of the the disease, physiological diseases, including cancer, diabetes, uh, heart disease. Uh, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and many 
uh, that of the have a very strong genetic component and we may be able to do something about it and it's the same thing with the food too you know we are a, we are a world now with seven and a half billion people we're probably going to stabilize at nine billion people but still there's a lot of people and for the food has to be grown somewhere and uh, and we i am pretty confident uh 30 40 50 years from now the kind of food production that we're going to indulge is going to be vastly different from what we do today it's going to be far more sustainable it's going to be having less footprint on the natural resources uh, air water and soil and everything it's going to be less polluting and and uh, and the food is going to be far more nutritious flavorsome and less toxins and allergens than what we have today and all of these things are possible uh, you know, it's right now the technology is showing the way and we may not be able to apply much fertilizer and pesticides in growing our food and maybe much of the meat may be grown in, you know, in the, in, in the lab. And, uh, and so there's quite a lot of transformational changes that we already seen happening in, in the agriculture system today. It's going to impact how we're going to grow and consume food in the future. So you think we've really just sort of scratched the surface as far as history goes uh, with this technology? Is that yeah, certainly. You know, I mean, you know, in the whole of human history of agriculture, you know, we have, we have, uh, you know, we have practiced agriculture for the last ten thousand years, which is again a very small spectrum. We've been alive for 200, 200, 200,000 years, and it's very small. And within that, uh, the biotechnology has been. Is only and with us only for the last 25 years, but it, this is a game-changing technology that is already affecting how we do our medicine, how we do, uh, you know, our forensics, for instance, and how we are developing new crops and livestock. Looking forward, I would think that 21st century is going to be defined as the century of biology that profoundly made a difference in the lives of people in many unforeseen ways, uh, improve the health, improve the environment, and improve the food production, and, and the quality of life overall. Uh, all of this, uh, I think, would be made possible with the, in, the, the smart use of biotechnology with all the other innovations that are coming along, including the computational biology uh, that is helping us to do so many things that we could not have imagined even five years ago. Right. It's amazing stuff. Very incredible stuff. Um, Dr. Prakash, I want to thank you for your time once again. And um, mm -hmm. if you guys want to follow this social media influencer on Twitter, it is uh, at AGBioWorld. Give him a follow and send him a nice message. And uh, any, anything else you want to direct people to? Um, any websites other than your Twitter handle? or? I think my Twitter handle and uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know people that who whom I tend to interact with, uh, including Kevin Folta and his podcast, have a lot of useful information. And so, what what, what I what I want to to tell your audience is to you know to trust science and trust scientists. It's not that we are right all the time, but at least we have a system of correcting ourselves if we are wrong. And so 100%. over time, we tend to we tend to own up to our mistakes and tend to improve over time, and that's how science works. And and I'm sure by believing in science and by trying to look towards 
uh, objective source of information, uh, your audience would be able to make informed decisions themselves. Well, I appreciate it very much, and uh, we definitely are pro-science here at the DCAS show. And uh, yes, and shout out to Dr. Kevin Falta as well. Uh, maybe we'll have both of you guys on here one day. That could be pretty cool. Awesome. <laughs> okay, thanks again for your okay. time, and uh, have fun watching the debates. Thank you, Derek. I enjoyed okay. talking to you. We'll Bye -bye. talk to you later. See ya. Goodbye.